Awesome, isn't it? Isn't it amazing that Christ can be born in us? Isn't that amazing? Spiritually speaking, isn't that fantastic? We're going to children's church. Anybody else want to go? Well, amen. Your Bible's open to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. This is going to be a very, very familiar passage of Scripture. We are talking a little bit again this morning about stewardship. Um, But this is a very familiar event in the life of Christ. It's also recorded, I think, in in Luke's Gospel. Uh, I believe Luke 8 also has this this event, this miracle. You know, when you think about uh, the Christian life and the blessings that it is to be a believer in Christ, and and if we were to do a survey and say, you know, what's the most precious thing uh, about being a Christian? And some of the things we would say or could say, and they're all true. You might say it's the it's the fellowship of believers. It's uh, it's being blessed with the spiritual gift and, and using my gift in the church. It's worship. It's worship. It's it's the, the the privilege of having freedom of worship or worship through giving or making sacrifices. I mean, you could just go on and on about what are are the attributes of of being a believer. But what I want you to think about uh, is what's the most important thing about being a believer, and. Um, Robbie read a passage out of John 8 where Jesus said three times in a handful of verses to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, in Israel, you will die in your sin. Let me tell you to me the greatest truth about Christianity, about having a relationship, having the new birth, being born again in Christ, whatever term you want to use, being saved, to me, it's being a forgiven sinner. Having your sins forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the the greater knowledge, the greater understanding that we have about our own sin nature I think the more we'll love the Lord Jesus Christ. And giving will not be a problem. We will give because of what He's given us through forgiveness. I am in Mark chapter 2, and I want to read just 12 verses, but before I, the first 12 verses, but the context is just so interesting. Now, by the way, the Gospel of Mark, um, I've never preached through Mark, and I'm not going to try to preach through Mark this morning, but. Mark is the shortest of the Gospels. There's a chance it's the earliest of the Gospels. Some people call Mark really the the Gospel of Peter because Peter was such close friends with John Mark who wrote the Gospel, this this Gospel. And, And Mark's Gospel is very swift. And what I mean by that, you find the word immediately or and then so kind of thing, but immediately is translated in the ESV. 
you'll see immediately, immediately, immediately. So it's kind of a fast-paced gospel. And of course, if, if what we're reading here in Mark chapter 2 doesn't appear in Luke's gospel to Luke chapter 8, you know it's a quite abbreviated gospel. And historically, we believe Matthew and Luke probably used Mark's gospel kind of as a guideline as God inspired them to write their Gospels. But I do want to set the context. So go back to chapter 1. I just want to show you a couple of things about the Gospel of Mark real quickly. Uh, in, in, Luke, in, I'm sorry, in Mark 1, uh, look at verse 9. Uh, you have the baptism of Jesus. But I just want to show you God's Word. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Obviously, John the Baptist. And when he came up out of the water, immediately, there's that word, immediately, he saw the heavens being torn open. Interesting words there. Uh, The other Gospels don't use quite so vivid of a term, torn open. And the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now, it wasn't a dove but it descended upon him like a dove. It didn't descend upon him like the eagle, an eagle. It descended on him like a dove. So it was visible, whatever it was, but it was a soft landing. And that's how Mark describes it. That's what happened to Jesus when the Spirit descended. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then Mark goes to the temptation Obviously, it's the shortest temptation of the three synoptic Gospels. He just covers it in two verses. Then he goes to where Jesus starts His ministry in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came into Galilee. Look what, once you hear what Christ preached. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee. Now, you know, you think about your biblical maps. Galilee's about a, you know, let's just say a hundred miles from, from Jerusalem, due north, okay? It's 80 miles uh, from Nazareth where Jesus w- was raised. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came from Galilee, came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And we've already read the consequence if you do not repent and believe the gospel. Jesus said, He said it 2,000 years ago, and it's still true today. If you do not repent and believe the gospel, you will die in your sins. But the good news of the gospel is Christ died in your place. Amen? That's the good news of the gospel. In Christ, now just think about what He does for us. He delivers us from the bondage of sin. And He declares us righteous even though we're not righteous. We are, all of us in here that are saved, are forgiven sinners. We're not perfect, but we're forgiven. Now obviously we have a new life and the life that we live is far different from the life that we lived before Christ. But we're still sinners. And so, as a believer, I live my life and you live your life as a forgiven sinner. 
But I love that it says that Jesus came preaching the gospel, repent and believe, repent and believe. Verse 21 says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out. Now this is in you know, Capernaum. Is, we're going to find out in a minute. It describes it as his home. And more than likely we're talking about Peter's home. When you go to Israel, you'll get to see this. You get to see the synagogue. Even though it's, you know, you're looking at stones that are probably several hundred years removed from when Jesus was there. But you, by the way, you can look down and they do show you if it's still the same. I'm, I'm chasing a rabbit now. But when you go to Capernaum uh, where Peter lived and Peter's home, they even think they know where Peter lived. You go to the synagogue and of course the concrete and blocks you're walking on, they'll say this is, you know, this wasn't the, this is what Jesus, this wasn't what Jesus walked on. But they'll take you to some huge gaps and they'll say, if you'll look down about 30 feet, you will see the stones beneath here. And that's what we believe was here when Jesus walked through Capernaum. This is interesting, but this was where Jesus spent most of his time in Capernaum. Matter of fact, the Bible says it'll be more tolerable in the day of judgment to Sodom and Gomorrah than for unbelievers in Capernaum because of the miracles and the preaching they heard from Christ when he walked upon this earth. Isn't that interesting? He says it'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for those who lived in Capernaum and rejected the gospel message. Uh, Church history tells us that in Capernaum and around Galilee, that disease was eliminated in many of the small villages when Jesus walked in this ministry around the Sea of Galilee. Just interesting things. Well, let's keep reading. So he's in in Capernaum. It says... uh, so he taught them as one who had authority, and, and it says, Immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? This also, uh, you hear this same phrase used by other demons. Matthew's Gospel says there was a, a, in the Gadarenes, uh, off the Sea of Galilee too, there was a demon that also recognized Jesus as thou art you know, the Son of the living God. That's what he called him. So, by the way, this demon has correct theology. So he cried out, What have we to do? What are you going to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, Who is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey Him. And then it says, And at once His fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. Jesus healed people and Jesus cast out demonic spirits. And so Jesus' fame was incredible in and around Galilee. But to be honest with you, if you read the Gospels, you find out it wasn't the crowds that really glorified the Lord Jesus Christ. If you read the context here, we won't take the time, but Jesus had to go out 
into the country area uh, to get away from the crowds because really they were going to try to make him king. You know, what they're going to eventually find out is he can cast out demons, he can heal disease, and he's going to create food. He did that for them around the Sea of Galilee. So they want to make him king. So he goes to these excluded places. But now I'm at chapter 2, verse 1. So he comes back to Capernaum, and this is where we pick up the context. And when he returned to Capernaum, by the way, when I was a young Christian, I didn't call that Capernaum. I called it Capernaum. <laughs> Are you laughing at me, Moses? That's what it looks like. So, I mean, I had never heard somebody say Capernaum. You might, you might do the same thing. I, I remember the day I was in the pulpit and did that. Wow. Anyway, I wasn't pastoring, but, but I was in the pulpit. But anyway, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. You see that? Now, it's not saying that Jesus owned this house. But it does tell us, and there was obviously a miracle earlier where Peter's mother was sick and he healed Peter's mother. And, uh, and then she kept serving them once she was better. But it's probably the home of Peter, Andrew and Peter. But this was where he would go when he, if he was spending the night in and around Galilee. And Capernaum is the northern part of the Sea of Galilee uh, you know, the Sea of Galilee is really like a large lake. You know that. I mean, you can see from end to end and side to side. Uh, we returned to Capernaum after some days. It was reported that he was in the home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the Word to them. Don't you like that? So Jesus... I'm making an assumption that he's in Peter's home, okay? Or he's at home. And people again have found out that he's back in town. And the crowds are massive, okay? You can see a picture. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. I think it's the New King James or King James... One of the translations say, born by four. I love the way it describes. And we won't get into, you got to wonder what it took to organize these four guys and the plans they made, but let's keep reading. It's just an incredible act of mercy because what was their goal? Obviously, they wanted their paralyzed friend to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they, it says, and, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, Robbie, would you, Rob, would you get me my, one of those waters right down there for me? The weather's also, well, there's some, I got to drink this. I'm sorry, I'm just losing my voice. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. Immediately you can kind of get the picture. I mean, the, the commitment these four guys made. To, I mean, to carry up. I don't care how big the paralyzed man was. Even he's being carried at each corner of his blanket, cot. I mean, this is a job. This is a task. And by the way, the houses, and there's still some houses like this there. One level. Uh, 
roof was flat, usually had some kind of thatch on top and under that was dirt, some kind of sawdust stuff, and then they would put thatch on top of that. But that's where a lot of people spent the day because it was in the breeze, it was up. Plus the animals weren't around, you know, you could get away from the animals. And so usually there was an outside stairwell and you'd go upstairs on the outside of the house and there, that's where they would spend a, a lot of time. So this is where they went up. So they carried him up the steps and got on the roof. They removed the roof above him. And, and it's interesting when you read the text and study the word roof and find what the Greek word roof says. There were many kinds of roofs and many styles of roof. This wasn't the cheapest kind of roof. It was a, it was a fairly extensive way of having a roof. There were other ways to do it, but the word used here, it was a substantial structure. The roof was a substantial structure. They removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, and you're thinking in your mind, man, that, that had to be a big opening because they have him on a cot, and they're going to let him down. So they had to find the rope. I mean, you think about all the preparations that were made. This is just a summary of the miracle. They removed the rope above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed in which the paralyzed man lay. Now, these words are extremely critical, what Jesus says and does. By the way, they knew enough about the house, so you're assuming they had been in the house before. This is my assumption. Because they knew where on the roof to lower... I mean, if, if you can't get to the door, well, you, you haven't looked inside yet, maybe, so maybe they already knew just about where they would need if Jesus was in a certain part of the house, which was one room, this is where we need to lower it down. They so rude to Ruth, and they had made an opening. They laid Him down on the bed, which the paralyzed man was on. And, and when Jesus... Now you're looking at your Bibles. When Jesus saw their faith. When Jesus saw their faith. Now, I know what it's saying, you know, but faith itself is unseen, right? Works are seen. Faith is unseen, you know. Your faith in your mind and heart, I can't see. The works of your faith, I can see. But the implications are not that Jesus was just judging what they were doing. He's God in human form. Jesus made an, a statement about who they were on the inside. Their faith. And now we don't know if it was the, just the four men, it was the four men and the guy that was paralyzed. We're assuming it's all five, and I'll show you that in just a second. And Jesus saw their faith. Well, we just remind you that He knows our hearts. That's why the Bible calls us Him the heart knower. He knows everything about us. Hebrews tells us that we're all absolutely naked and open before Him. We, there's, we're exposed. There's absolutely nothing we're hiding from the Lord Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son. Interesting. Interesting word, Son. He normally didn't do that. Son, your sins are forgiven. 
It's a pretty bold statement. Let's read the rest of the narrative and we'll get back to that. Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God? I think uh, Luke tells us that not only were the scribes there, but there were Pharisees there as well. And I think it describes that there were these scribes and Pharisees from really all over some villages that were around Galilee because Jesus was a big deal. Now this is early in Christ's ministry, so the hate from the scribes and Pharisees were not as severe now as they are going to be. But it seems to me there was a lot of scribes and Pharisees evaluating the teachings of Jesus in that, in that house. And they say, He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in His Spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you... Again, heart, He knows everything about the heart of man. Why do you question these things in your hearts? You know, I think about all the times I read Scripture and I doubt in my heart or something's happening in life and, and maybe you're questioning God's sovereign provisions for you. Whatever it would be. We all go through this. He knows the heart of man. He knows the heart of man. So every doubt, every fear, you know, it's, it's not hidden from Him. Uh, so, so He says to them, why, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. Folks, this is why Jesus did miracles. Okay? He did miracles to confirm His deity. He didn't do miracles to draw large crowds. Uh, he didn't announce that He was going to have a, a healing service and put a big tent up and have a tent healing service. That's not what Jesus did. He did miracles to verify His deity. And so He's, he's asked this group of naysayers, that are in, in the house, uh, what's easier? To say to a man, your sins are forgiven, or to say to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And of course, in our minds we're saying, well, you can say anything you want. We can, words are cheap unless it can be backed up with action. So look what Jesus says to him. He says, or to rise and take up your, your bed and walk. And he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man. You looking at your Bibles? This first time the Mark records Jesus using the Son of Man, where Christ is his, his, his incarnate identifying with man, his voluntary and vicarious coming into this world, which we're fixing to celebrate the Christmas season the incarnate God becoming man. He's the Son. He said, 
that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. And we, he had, Jesus had both power. The Greek word dynamite had, had the power, but He also had the authority, the exousia, he, the position. It's almost like in, in the Roman world, you had exousias, different levels of political authority. Well, Christ has all the authority. He's King of kings. And so He has power and He has authority. So He says, so you'll know that, that I have the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And there's a reason why I want him to go home. And he rose. And he immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this before. Now folks, when I was reading that, I've been thinking about this all week long, and you read that phrase where everybody in the crowd says, wow, we've never seen anything like this before. You know, I think about when you got saved, when you were born again, whatever term you want to use, the moment that God transitioned you from death to life, He rose you from spiritual death and gave you life. You know, the people around you, their response to your new life should have been much like this. They'd never seen anything like that in you before. And, and because of the, trans, the transformation is so powerful for those of us that have come to know Christ. I don't think in many ways it's more, spiritually speaking, it's more dramatic than this was physically. But I want you to think about, look, just real quick, while you have your Bible, hold your finger. Go to Mark. I mean, sorry. Go to Luke seven, real quick. It's kind of a parallel um, storyline here, but I just want you to see uh, what Jesus says about forgiveness. Luke chapter seven, and this is a, a very familiar passage of scripture as well. Look at verse uh, Luke seven. I'll, I'll begin at verse. Uh, 36, but I won't read the whole narrative. This is where they're in the house of a Pharisee, but there's a prostitute there, which we won't even get into how in the world does a religious fanatic have a prostitute in his house that was unheard of, but she's there. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table, and behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, uh, weeping, and again, he's reclined at table, so his feet are to the side. She began to wet his feet with her tears and to wipe them with the hair of her head and kiss his feet and anoint them with the ointment. And of course, the... He says, now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he, he said to himself, if, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. 
for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. He said, a certain money lender had two debtors. One, one owed 500 denarii, the other 50 denarii. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet, which was a common courtesy, having your, the a servant washing the feet if you're going to recline at table. Just common courtesy. Do you see this woman? I, I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Now here's the whole point of reading that. For she loved much. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. This is what Jesus is saying about this whole event. This woman demonstrated her love for Christ by pouring out this expensive ointment on Christ with her tears, wiping it with her hair. She did all that because He had forgiven her sins. And so what Jesus reminds us is, He who is forgiven much, loves much. He who is forgiven little, loves little. Now here's, here's what Jesus means by that. There's nobody in here that has ever been forgiven little. Does, does anybody in here want to stand up and say, Brother Bryce, I've been forgiven a very little. Folks, we sin. You sin. I sin. Let me. I've sinned enough today to send all of us to hell. Me, your preacher. So if we've been forgiven, right? We've been forgiven much. Am I right? Amen. So if we've been forgiven much, we will love much. Listen to some of these Bible verses. These are some of my favorite Bible verses on forgiveness. Psalm 103 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our sins from us. As far as the east is from the west, you keep going east, and if it's possible, you never go west, right? You keep going east. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our sins from us. By the way, I was reading an article this week and this guy was writing about how we believers sometimes get caught up in this trend to overcome eternal guilt. Because we are eternally guilty. We're just forgiven. By doing temporal good deeds, temporal deeds, we, we somehow think we can balance the sheet. There's no way you can balance the sheet 
no matter how many good deeds you do. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, They shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Now listen to me. I was talking to... We do this a lot in counseling. He's God. Jesus is God in human form. God the Father is the eternal God. The Holy Spirit is, the, is God in spirit form. They, they know everything. They don't forget stuff. They're God. Right? One God in three persons. It says, I will not to remember. Do you see the difference? He wills not to remember. In our lives, even in married life, that, that's an important attribute of a healthy marriage. Yes, your mind will bring wrongs done to you up. The devil will throw all that up. But you, you choose not to remember. You live as if it never happened. Christ treats us as if the sin never happened. Ephesians 1 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Isaiah 38, 17, But in love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all of my sin behind your back. That's Isaiah 38, 17. Romans 4 says, and, and for the one who doesn't work for salvation, like Jews were consumed with that, but for the one who doesn't work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. His faith is counted as righteousness. That's the exact same phrase that comes from God's encounter with Abraham. Your faith is reckoned as righteousness because Abraham believed God treated him as if he wasn't a sinner. Because you and I have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of our sins have been forgiven. And they've been put behind Him. They've been thrown to the east as the east separates from the west, never to be known. I will Remember them no more. If you have your Bibles, flip, flip over to uh, Romans 3 real quick. And we'll go back to, to Mark 2 in just a second. Go to Romans 3 real quick. Romans 3. This is part of the Roman road. For those of us that we've learned the Roman road of salvation, this is part of that passage. But I'm in Romans 3. Look at, uh, beginning at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God, Romans 3, 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And read that again. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, 
and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. What was to show God's righteousness? That He put forth His Son to die for sinners. Let me ask you, would it be possible, would it be logical for a holy God who sacrificed His Son to leave sins that are not forgiven unpunished? That's not even logical. But for those who believe, it's counted as righteousness. Isn't that awesome? Look what he says. He finishes it. He says, this was to show God's righteousness. The propitiation by the blood of Christ. Punishing Christ in our stead kind of thing. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. And he's talking about is all the saints of the old covenant. Yes, they were safe. They were saved. But when Christ died, their sins were also imputed to Christ. So he, Christ died for the sins of all who were saved, both Old and New Testament saints. He passed over the former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, we're out of time. Go back to chapter 2 of Mark. I want to show you something. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I'm going to ask you one question. and I find this interesting. Just me, okay? So we, we can pretty well determine that the house is Peter's house, right? And Jesus had been in that house many times. Obviously, maybe the four guys that, that carried the guy on the pallet. Obviously, they weren't the disciples. I think they would have been named there. But the four, they're unnamed here by Mark. They're unnamed by Luke. They do what they did. So this man would be saved. But they all believed. They all were believers. That's what it says. And, God, and Christ, because they believed, He forgave their sins. That's what it says. But the one thing that's never talked about, and you may find this to be silly, but the one thing that's never talked about in Mark 2 that I find interesting is who, who paid to have the house repaired? It doesn't mention a building and grounds team getting together. It doesn't, doesn't talk about Peter getting the other 12, other 11 together and getting some money together. And I know all that had to happen. You can't go. You can't live life in a house with a man-sized hole in your roof. But Here's my point. When Christ saved those five men, 
they were saved. Their sins were forgiven. So you know they were born again. They believed and were saved. Since God in Christ saved those five men, did it really matter how much it would cost to fix the roof? I'm asking you, would it matter? Would it? Folks, that's why we give. We give to the body to disciple the saved and to win the lost. And folks, when we're doing that, no sacrifice is too much. Am I right? When we're we're doing that, no sacrifice is too much. Yes, so what? Peter's roof had a big hole in it. But from... From knowing the context, they didn't care. Because we know that right there, matter of fact, others believed, but those five men had their sins forgiven. That's a much more valuable thing than to have to repair a roof. Folks, I think we live in that same context. If our church is committed to discipleship and winning the lost, whatever you and I are led to give is not going to be too much because we are fulfilling the Word of God. Amen? Let's stand together for prayer. Again, let me remind you about Wednesday night. Stay tuned. If we need to make a change, we'll let you know. Brother Angel, where are you, my friend? It has been such a blessing to have you here. There's some folks here that may not be here Wednesday night. Would you mind standing in the foyer? Would y'all go to the foyer and stand so our folks can greet you when they, when they leave? It's been such a blessing. Pastor Angel's been went to Kentucky ten days ago. He went to Kentucky and preached to two churches, and and uh, we had the blessings of fellowshipping with him, driving him up to up to. We went to Athens, Alabama, and met the preachers, and then uh, we went up there this past Monday and picked him up and had a great time of fellowship. And Diane and I, I'll just tell you what we're going to do. The deacons decided that we met the other day and we are going to do a mission. Our church is going to do a mission to his church and work with him, but we're, going to, we're not going to do that anytime in the near future. But Diane and I are going to be going sometime in the spring and we'll come up with exactly what we might need to be doing down there and then we'll set some dates to do a, a, a mission tour to, to Ecuador. Amen? It's been so good. Thank you so much. Let's, Let's pray together. Father, I think about when when I when I see the Savior face to face. And as John warns us, we should obviously be living in such a manner that we'll not shrink back from that moment where we encounter our Savior face to face. But Lord, when I, when I see and behold His glory, and I'm welcomed into that eternal kingdom, Lord, I know that there's no sacrifice No hard work. No contribution. There's nothing I would have done in this world that will be too much. 
Father, today I want to love You more. I want to serve You more because I've been forgiven so, so much. Father, help us to love You more because we've been forgiven so much. Father, thank You for the privilege of together building the body of Christ called Redland Baptist Church. Dismiss us now with your grace and peace in Jesus' name. Amen.